picking up in Mark 4, and we're looking at verses 35 through uh, 40, basic, 41. Is it 40? 41? 40. Um, 41, I guess. And in this passage, um, we're going to see some really cool things this morning. I'm, I'm really excited. Mark writes this passage, this specific vignette, to, to notate a specific theological thought that he wants to communicate. And he does this by communicating the story that actually happened, but also he writes it in parallel to, to Jonah 1, the, the, the beginning of, of the book of Jonah. Additionally, he writes it alongside the idea of Psalm 107, and we'll look at what those are in a second. But when, um, when he was writing this, he was writing this with very specific purpose and intent. And, and it's not, and although it is a narrative, it's not just a narrative in the way that Mark writes it. There's more there. Now, the last passages that we looked at, remember Jesus had just finished a long day of teaching. He had finished uh, going through the parables, and, and he had gone through all those um, parables that were having to deal with the kingdom of God and the seed and, and you know, dealing with that very uh, agrarian culture there that, was, that, w- that they existed in. Now, the subject of Jesus' parables were the kingdom of God, but what Jesus was teaching was that the kingdom of God has already broken in, that it has already begun to, to, um, to manifest itself. And what he was communicating is that the kingdom of God could be found by those who are willing to hear or willing to listen. Um, And and the key there was that it's not just that you were were hearing what he was saying, but that you listen well, that you understand and process it. Now, that was his main point. It it was to to listen well. And, And Mark has been particularly focused on how Jesus has been pointing out all along that that he is indeed God, that he is the Son of God. He starts off in the very beginning of the book of Mark, you know, claiming that Jesus, the Son of God. That's, that's kind of his, his, uh, his statement there for why he's writing the book. You know, he is, wants to point out that this is God in flesh dwelling among us. And so in the story this morning, what we're going to look at, we're going to look at this passage of Jesus calming the sea, but we're going to look at it through uh, a couple different angles, but it's going to reveal how well his disciples actually listened to the things that he was saying. Okay? So now it's time for application. Jesus is trying to reveal to them, I am God, earlier in his, in his parables, and, and that I'm, I'm bringing the inbreaking kingdom of God, and they've been spending time with them, and now it's time to see what actually happens here. So we pick up in verse 35 through 37. On that day when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So Jesus is done after a long day of ministry. He's like, let's get out of here. We're going to, you know, let's go across to the other side. Jesus has a, a, a point. He has an idea of where he wants to go, and he fully intends to get there. And he's not stressed out about the process and the journey along the way. He says, we're going there. We're going to get there. So they leave the crowd, and they take him uh, in the boat just there, and and. As they go across, they encounter this great windstorm and, and waves, and they're breaking upon the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, this boat that they were in, they've actually kind of uh, found, in 1986, they found a bunch of boats that were kind of similar that they think, you know, they've, they've kind of dated them back through the centuries, and they kind of use a similar boat even today upon the, 
the Sea of Galilee. But this boat was about 26 and a half feet long by uh, seven and a half feet wide, and it was about four and a half feet high. So that was kind of the, the whole of the boat there. And it was, it was meant to be propelled by four rowers, two on each side, and it had a capacity of about 15 people. So this actually, um, it's not a large ship, but it's certainly large enough, you know, you would think uh, kind of in terms of like a small sailboat is kind of, kind of uh, what's happening here. Now, they're out upon the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee, it's positioned about 700 feet below sea level, and, and it's surrounded by hills, and, and um, there, there's, on the, on the northeastern side, about 30 miles to the northeast, Mount, uh, um, what's it called, Mount Hermon, it, it raises off over the sea to about uh, 9,200 feet, and, and those two, um, the difference in the in the height and the depth of those create weird weather conditions at the top of of Mount Hermon you know it can there's this cold upper air and then you have a warm air that's rising out of the sea I, I kind of likened it to um you know when I'm when I'm at the beach and I'm digging a hole with my kids and we dig one that we can sit in and it's like all windy on the top but as soon as you go in there it's all of a sudden you're like really hot before you're freezing, and now like you're sweating sitting in this little hole. But right at the peak, you can kind of, when you start to pop your head out, you know, there's kind of like this like clashing of systems there where the, where the air is coming out. Now, this is exactly what would happen. These, these systems would come together, and they would, they would converge right in the Jordan Valley and come right down there upon to uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it, it would create these storms that would happen almost instantaneously. And, and in fact, in, in this text, it actually tells us that, um, that it's a great windstorm. The, the Greek indicates that it's of hurricane proportions. Like, this is just like, this is a massive storm. We're, we're told that the storm was so great that it's washing over the boat and that it, the boat's nearly filled up. You know, this isn't just they're in a, you know, a small situation here. They're in trouble. The boat is like, you know, they're bailing, they're bailing, and it's like, nearly filled up, and they're trying to row and get through this thing. But here's the thing. Jesus is asleep in the back. Verse 38, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And when they woke him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're freaked out, okay? And to kind of give you the idea of the level of the storm, Jesus' disciples that he called, they're professional fishermen on this lake, they know this lake. This is like their comfort zone. This is their experience. If, if anybody knows the lake, they know this lake. They know this situation. They're experienced sailors here. You know, the text tells us that they were afraid. So this must have just been like a massive storm for them to be in this situation where they're just losing it now. So ironically, we see Jesus asleep in the back. And in the, this is the only really place in the Gospels that we hear of Jesus sleeping. It's during a storm, you know. Uh, but what this does is it demonstrates Jesus' complete trust in God. It demonstrates his complete trust in the midst of adversity, in the midst of storm. You know, and this is exactly like what Jesus was was saying, he's applying this, what he was saying in the earlier parables, like the farmer who trusts God's work to overcome all obstacles and adversities, so Jesus sets about to trust God in that way. He's relaxed, he's resting in that storm. He has that source, you know, as he is in community with God the Father, he doesn't have a reason to panic. He's resting in, in the Lord. Now, 
the disciples, they come at him, Jesus is sleeping, and, and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, they have like this r- very rude wording that they, they kind of attack Jesus with. You know, it's the way that frustrated people or, you know, uh, angry people, that, you know, they speak. I, I know that I get that way oftentimes when, you know, you're asking that rhetorical question like, what in the world? They're not actually asking for help. They're, they're saying like, don't you care? You know, that, that's their whole thing. And don't we often do that? And, you know, I mean, how many times have, have we done that with the things that are going on in our lives, with the storms that we experience, with the trials and tribulations? You know, we often are thinking that. Maybe we're say, afraid to say it out loud sometimes, but we're thinking it like, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? Like, don't you know what's going on in my life right now? Don't you know the things that, that we're, we're, I'm going through? When we're in the midst of storms, we have that same attitude. Don't you care? Don't you care about me, Jesus? Why aren't you helping me? You know, I'm obviously going through a storm here. Can you help me out a little bit? I'm, you know, I'm, and we have this, this struggle that we go through. And, and, you know, it's in those times where we feel like we're about to drown. It's, it's in those, those moments where we're overwhelmed. And we can hear ourselves in the disciples' questions here. To, when, when they ask Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? It's like, I've said that before. Like, don't you know what's going on in my life, Jesus? Don't you, like, this could be way easier. Now, here's what happens. Jesus wakes up in verse 39. He says, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. So here's what happens. The disciples, they're upset, they're angry, they're frustrated. They're asking Jesus what's going on. And all of a sudden, Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. He says, peace, be still. Now, when you hear of of the disciples later on in the book of Acts, or when you hear, you know, in different um, in healing legends and things like that, of people uh, being healed, what happens is the, the person who is commanding or the healer, they come up and they say, you know, be healed in the name of, you know, or uh, I cast you out in the name of. But what Jesus does here, he doesn't do that. He just says, peace, be still. His authority is in himself. He doesn't need to call on the name of another. He is the one who created the wind and the waves. He doesn't need to, to cite someone else's authority and power. He is the one who, who called those things into being. And in the same way that Jesus you know, created the, the wind and the waves with the word, in the same way he calms them with the word. He speaks. This is the power of the word of God. And so here we see Jesus calming these things. Now, two things happen. The first thing, Jesus speaks. The second thing, nature obeys. That's how it works. This is not an accident, okay? Um, you, you've kind of, uh, if you look at the scientific kind of data around the lake, you know, in, in different commentators, some people uh, may have the idea of like, well, you know, just as quickly as the storm started, that's how quickly they can stop. You know, but if you've ever been on a boat uh, in a storm or, or in rough seas, if the wind stops, the waves don't. They keep going for a while. There's, it's, it doesn't, there's not a, a, a direct calm immediately. I've been on a cruise ship. Um, I, I was 
blessed to go on this cruise ship to travel around in like the Mediterranean Sea and go to like all the churches that like Paul ministered at. It was awesome. But one of the things uh, that happened along the way was like we got in this storm and it was nuts. We were out um, playing around on the deck on the top in the middle of the storm and you know we're like super high and and the, wa- the waves were kind of like spraying against the side of the boat and we could kind of feel it and the wind was blowing really hard. And then we woke up the next morning and the storm had stopped, but the ocean was still really wild. It was still moving quickly because the, the results and the effects of the storm. And so even here, what happens is that the storm is immediately calm. Okay, it, this is a direct... Um, when Jesus says, be still, what he's actually saying here is he's talking to it as if it was like a personal being. He says, be muzzled, stop, knock it off. And he uses, he uses a tense that means keep staying still. He, he's commanding it in a way um, to keep the, the situation calm, to keep the wind calm. Now, among the ancient cultures and even among uh, the, the Jews, the sea was viewed as uncontrollable by any power but God. The sea was viewed as a force that was unstoppable, that was a symbol of, of destruction and of judgment. This was the, the idea that the only person who could control that was God. And so, and in the Old Testament, God alone possesses this power to, to stop storms. And, and so when when Mark is writing this, he's writing this in parallel to Psalm 107. It says this, uh, Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Then he, uh, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. This story is not necessarily to demonstrate that Jesus has, you know, power. We've seen Jesus heal, you know, uh, lame people. We've seen Jesus uh, cast out demons. What this story is intended to do, what Mark is informing us of, is that this same power and authority belongs to Jesus. What he's doing, again, in his quest to demonstrate who Jesus is, is he's saying very straightforwardly in comparison that Jesus is God. He possesses the same, the same power and same authority. And so he uses Psalm 107 to do this. Now, now he goes on in verse 40. He says, he said to them, Jesus is... is now having this conversation with his disciples, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, the disciples here are called out by Jesus on their fear. There's two instances of fear that exist here. The first one is that they were afraid of the wind and the waves. 
They believed that they were going to die. They didn't listen when Jesus said, we're going to the other side, that he meant it. They didn't listen to the words that he had said in the parable. You know, they, they weren't applying the understanding and the idea of who Jesus is. And so in their panic, they accused Jesus of, of not loving them. Don't you care that we're perishing? And so what does Jesus do? He gets up and he calms the storm. He commands the storm by speaking to it and he stills it. And, and you would think that this would put the disciples at ease, right? But Mark goes on to tell us that the disciples were terrified at the calming of the storm. They were feel, filled with great fear, it says. The terror of the disciples at what Jesus has just done exceeds their, their previous fear. Their, before, they were afraid at the wind of the waves, and now it's calm, and they're freaked out. Like, they are terrified at what happens. His disciples here, they're, they're better equipped to handle the, the, the thought of them dying than being in the same boat with God. They're they're in a position where they're, they're considering, well, you know, before we thought that we have, we know this lake. We thought that we could get out of this. We've seen the weather patterns. We've gone through these sorts of storms before by ourselves. This is an issue that, that was based around control. They felt that if they were in the boat, you know, at least they had some experience there. At least they would have some control over the situation. So this is a control issue. Why else would they be so afraid? All of a sudden, these expert sailors, they're in a place where they're not able to control the sea. They, they, they knew that the sea could be wild. They knew that it was something that symbolized destruction and judgment, that it was something to be feared. So although they were afraid of the ocean, they expected it. It, you know, but the ocean, although it was mighty and powerful, although, you know, it was something that they would fear, they now find out that Jesus is infinitely more powerful than the ocean. And so now they're understanding they have even less control over him. It was Jesus who loves them, who put them in this situation, and so when Jesus is, is resting there, and Jesus leads them into this, and now they're accusing him, don't, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus does care. He is the one who led them into this situation. But they're, they're, the whole idea of the disciples, their, their, their premise was wrong, okay? They thought that this would be smooth sailing, it's like, we're with Jesus, it's smooth from here on out. But all of a sudden, they find out that they're with him, and this is crazier than anything they've ever been in. That they have an understanding that Jesus who loves them, Jesus who picked them, who chose them, who called them to follow him, he put them in this situation. No wonder they're terrified. Isn't that like, you know, just the most crazy thing to find out. They're finding out that Jesus has allowed them to go into this storm. And they're thinking, if he does indeed love us, if he does indeed pick, if he did indeed pick us here, what else are we about to go into? You know, if he says that he loves us, if he's led us here and we're with him, 
what, you know, what in the world else are we about to experience by following this man? Because the life of a follower of Christ is never safe. It's never comfortable and it's never smooth sailing. In fact, there will be times of smooth sailing, but Jesus himself, he has told us in his own word, he has said uh, that we would experience trouble. He's willing to let his people go through storms. The premise of the disciples was wrong. They started off thinking that if they were with him, they wouldn't have to deal with any problems ever. This is like when you're a little kid. I, went, I grew up going to, a, to like a private Christian school, and this was kind of like the stock prayer when you were like in fourth grade. Jesus, help our day to be awesome. Help nothing bad to happen. Like that's kind of like the, like the two things. Awesome day, nobody get hurt, nothing bad happen. Like that's just kind of how it works. But, but that's, not, you know, that's not what Jesus is leading his people into. In fact, in his great high, high priestly prayer in John 17, he says this when praying about us to the Father. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He is, is sending us to, to follow him, to be a part of making disciples. And so when he, writes, uh, when he writes this, when Mark's writing this, what he's pointing out is that those who follow Christ are going to experience storms, that we're going to experience troubles and trials. Now, remember that Mark writes this as a parallel to the book of Jonah. And, and in the culture of that time, in the culture of, uh, of the... Um, you know, kind of the, the trade of the day with fishermen and a lot of uh, uh, vessels out upon the lake and things like that, that sea was a symbol of destruction and judgment. And so that's why it was so significant when Jesus had authority over the sea. And Mark writes this in comparison uh, with Jonah chapter 1. Now he writes this, it's, it's almost identical. When you look at the story side by side, when you look at Jonah 1 and Mark 4, uh, 35 through 45, it's like literally like so close. Here's the deal. With, with, in Jonah 1, 4, it talks about Jonah being in a storm of epic proportions. In the same way, we see that in verse 37 here in chapter Mark. Um, now in in Jonah 1.5, we see that, that Jonah, he's asleep on the ship. And, and in verse 38 here, we see that Jesus is asleep on, in, the, in the stern of the, of the ship as well. And then what happens in, in Jonah 1.15, after uh, Jonah is thrown overboard, the sea is calm. The sea is calm, and, and the, the sailors who are pagans upon the ship, they recognize who God is, and they worship. They offer sacrifice, and then and we see that same thing after uh, Jesus speaks and calms the sea in verse thirty-nine. The sea's calm, and the disciples they recognize that they're that Jesus is God. They're freaked out, and the the sailors are terrified. We see that in in Jonah one ten and verse sixteen, and then also in verse forty-one of chapter uh, chapter four of Mark. Now. These things parallel each other very well. There, Mark writes this intentionally so that we, we might see where he's going with this. Oftentimes when you look at this passage, what you walk away from is Jesus is powerful, 
Like, that's it. But Mark is wanting to, to show more than that. He's wanting to show so much more about Jesus' love and care. Now, although these stories are nearly identical, in the midst of the storm, here's what happens. When Jonah's there and he realizes that God is, is chasing him, you know, God's trying to get him to repent, what happens to Jonah, he says there in Jonah 1.12, he basically says, guys, he gets to this group of sailors, he says, guys, throw me in the ocean, throw me into that judgment, because if I die, you will live. If I'm, if I'm killed, you guys will be safe. And, and, and so, although that doesn't happen in our story here on Mark, later in the book of Luke and in the book of Matthew, Jesus refers to himself as the one who is greater than Jonah. He says in, uh, in the book of Luke, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus is saying that one day he's going to be thrown into that sea of judgment. He's going to be put into that sea of destruction. He is going to be thrown there on our behalf. If he dies, we will live. Jesus has calmed the storm here in this temporary moment where he says, peace, be still. And it's calm. But one day it will be still forever through the work of the cross. And, and when we consider that work, when we consider that Jesus will be thrown into that storm of destruction and judgment on our behalf, it's impossible for us to come then and say, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? We can never be in the position to say that because he has been thrown into the storm on our behalf. He has been thrown into the storm so that way the wind and the waves will never overtake us. And when we go through storms in life, we can, we can no longer stand on that as an accusation because his love has been proven forever through the work of the cross. At the peak moment here, when the disciples are in the most terror that they've ever experienced, you know, when they're scared and desperate, Jesus was near to them in the storm. They didn't think he was near to them, but he was there. He was with them. And so when Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What he's actually saying to them is, or, or, or what he's actually asking is, in what or in whom have you placed your trust? He's not actually, you know, it's kind of like one of those rhetorical questions. Why, why are you so afraid? It's like, who are you trusting in? He's asking them to recall the things that he has said previously. Because you see, your faith is only as good as the object in which you place it. You know, uh, if I were to decide that I needed to sit down right here and there was a balloon and I just plopped right down on it, my faith in the balloon to hold me is only as good as the thickness of that rubber and the manufacturing quality. I, you know, have no clue and probably I'm going to pop and fall. But if I was to pull up one of these chairs and sit in it, it's been tested. I've seen you guys sit in them week to week to week to week, and I have full trust and faith in those things to hold me. And so likewise, Jesus is the object of our faith here. He is faithful. He is worthy. He, his track record is perfect. And so he has already weathered the storm. He has already been through 
the destruction and judgment on our behalf, and so therefore we can have confidence in him. The object of our faith is Christ. And so this story is not just a story about how powerful Jesus is, but, how, but it's about seeing how beautiful and faithful he is. Jesus already told us in John 16 that we would have trouble, trials, tribulation. He, but that's not all he said there. John 16, 33, but I, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, tribulation, but, I, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, the focus of the disciples in this story was their surrounding circumstances. They saw the wind, they saw the waves. It was upon, you know, they could feel the, the ocean spray upon their face. But they weren't focused on who they were with. They weren't focused on Jesus. They were looking at all these things, the, 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 you know, the surrounding circumstances, the waves crashing over the bow, and, and they didn't realize that they were simply with the Creator. Now, in John 16 here, Jesus doesn't just say that we're going to have troubles and, and trials and tribulations. He tells us two other things. He says that we can find peace in him. It's the, it's the very first thing he tells us before we're, we're warned of the things to come. He says in 1633, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Notice that peace amidst the trial and tribulation is linked to Jesus. And then he tells us that we're going to have troubles and trials and tribulations in the world. But then right after that, he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now we're going to experience these things. We're going to have troubles, we're going to have trials, we're going to have tribulations. But he, he makes a divide here. He says, he has overcome the world. We've not overcome the world. And, and we can overcome the world through him, through finding peace in him. We're told that so that we might be able to weather the storms, that we might be able to go through the situations where it doesn't feel like he's paying attention. It doesn't feel like, you know, things are going well, that Jesus is even aware that we're having troubles, that we're, we're feeling like we're drowning. But yet, we're told again and again, remember, Jesus is in the boat with us. He is there among us that we might have peace in him. That we might rest as he rested in God. As he was, was relaxing amidst the storm. That we might find peace in him. Now, earlier um, we looked at the idea of Jesus talking with the Pharisees about the Sabbath day. And, and in that um, in that story, they were having a little bit of an argument about it, but Jesus responded back to them simply, you know, they were arguing over, you know, the, the purpose of the Sabbath. But what Jesus ended up saying in that story was not just that, uh, that um, you know, that you could find rest through him, you know, that he would point you in the direction. What he was literally saying to them was, he is rest, he is peace, and we can only find that through Jesus. 
No doubt we're going to face these storms. No doubt we're going to face trials. No doubt they're promised to us that this is coming. But only will we be able to endure if we find peace, if we find rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful.